I don't think gathering is rocket science. I actually think a lot of gathering gets very complicated because we think it is rocket science. It's actually very, very, very human. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can find more creativity and meaning in your life through the simple act of slowing down. Many of the conversations I've had on the podcast thus far have revolved in some way around self-management and the individual, how you can make wiser decisions or how you can manage your attention better. But today, we're zooming out from the individual perspective to talk about the collective, to talk about the transformational possibilities that arise when you gather a lot of bodies together in one place for a specific purpose. My guest is Priya Parker, the author of a deeply thoughtful new book called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Her unique background spans everything from fostering dialogue for conflict resolution through her work on race relations on college campuses around America, to creating environments for intimate connection through her dinner series, The 15 Toasts. And after years of investigating what helps people come together in a meaningful way, Priya has come to believe that all the best gatherings share one common feature. They have a specific, disputable purpose. One that some people will resonate with, and some people will disagree with. One that forces you, as the host, to be intentional about who you invite and why. Priya's conviction is that by being very clear about your purpose and setting boundaries that protect that purpose, you can unlock something special. You can create a space where people feel like they have permission to show themselves in new ways, to get vulnerable, and to open up to transformation. In this conversation, Priya and I touch on gatherings of all types, work meetings, conferences, dinner parties, funerals, and even photo shoots. So if you don't think of yourself as a gatherer, think again. We all need to create spaces for meaningful connection, and how to do that is exactly what this episode is all about. Now let's dive in. Your new book is about the art of gathering, so let's start by defining our terms. What is a gathering? I know a conference is a gathering, a wedding is a gathering, a meeting is a gathering, but what else fits? Are the people who are going to be listening to this podcast at different times of day in different places a gathering? If I go on a date on a Tinder, for instance, is that a gathering? Just a casual dinner party out, is that a gathering? I define a gathering as any time three or more people come together for a reason. And that doesn't mean that a gathering has to be planned ahead of time, though the majority of my book um, deals with people who are wanting to plan something ahead of time. I think you can have a spontaneous kind of friends on a sidewalk saying, hey, let's go into this udon shop. And all of a sudden you have a gathering. It may not be a long thought through gathering, but people uh, coming together, not two people, so not a Tinder date, um, in part because this book is really about group dynamics. And you use the word purpose to talk about defining the contours of what your gathering is about and also what it's not for. 
That got me thinking a lot. I was thinking I use the word intention really frequently, sort of in lieu of purpose. And I was thinking about why as I was preparing for this interview. And I think it's because purpose and intention both imply that you've, you know, defined a goal. But for me, intention also says something about um, creating a certain energy in the room. So what do you think about the difference of focusing on the outcome that you want for a gathering versus sort of the energy you want to create? That's a great question. I think of intention as what, as priming us to think about what we want to put in and purpose as making us, forcing us to think about the language I use is from Mamie Stewart Canfer, uh, a desired outcome. What do you want to get out of this? And both are important because your quality of being, your quality of presence as a guest or a host um, does impact the outcome, um, but also creates the connection and the meaning in the room. Um, that said, the reason why I purposely use purpose is because I think uh, you can have a great intention for a gathering, um, but it's harder to have a there there when you're only thinking about your quality of presence. So walk me through maybe a specific example of how you would see those purpose and intention playing out for a specific event in a positive way. So I will take a real example. Um, the writer, uh, Jancy Dunn, was, um, wanted to host a dinner party. And um, she, we were talking and she said, you know, okay, I'm going to host a dinner party. And I, I kept on pushing her to think about her purpose. And she said, it's, it's just a dinner party. And I said, well, you can have a dinner party about all sorts of different things. What is a need in your life right now? that people could come together for and perhaps share. And she thought, and she said, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a worn out mom. I, uh, I recently was at a friend's house and, and she cut me peanut butter jelly sandwich in triangles and I ate it and I felt so loved. I almost cried. And she said, I, I would love to actually maybe do a dinner party where I'm, I kind of take care of myself and, and I, and my, my other worn out moms to come. I said, great, give it a name. And she said, the worn out mom's hootenanny. And um, all of a sudden she had a purpose. Um, her purpose implicitly, and she, she sent out an email to her six girlfriends. Um, she subjected line that title. They all responded with an hour. Yes. You know, she, she made a rule. If you talk about your kids, you have to take a shot. Like it started to get really specific and really fun. Um, and I would say that, uh, to, to make the distinction between an intention and a purpose, her intention that evening might be go in and to have a great time. But her purpose is to create a space where she and the moms around her um, were able to have a night in which they weren't taking care of anybody else. I love that example. <laughs> you used another example in the book that I wanted to touch on, um, the story about the photographer Platon and one of his methods for creating a certain energy whenever he is doing portrait shoots, specifically with people who are really in positions of power, often heads of state, important politicians. Could you talk about that story? And if you think there's anything unique to consider when the purpose of the gathering is specifically to create a work of art or to do something creative? I spent a day with Platon in his studio um, in Soho. And one of the experiences I got to have was he photographed me. Um, 
And that was scary. <laughs> and but but what he did was he pulled out this white box, um, kind of tattered tattered old wooden box. It looks almost like a like a wine crate. Um, and he said, "Step into my office." And um, I sat on the box, and uh, and then I stood on the box. And I put a knee on the box, and he said, "Do you know who else has sat here?" And I said, "No." And he said, um, "You know, Ahmadinejad, Putin, President Clinton, Aung Yang Suki." And I thought, wow. And he basically what he does is he, no matter where he is, in that case, he was in his studio. So he had control of the whole room. But when you have a job like Platon's, he's often, he told me, he often gets like seven minutes with a head of state at the Sheraton, uh, you know, before all of the guards come like sweeping in. Or when he photographed Putin in the Black Forest, he was like in a hotel for days on end until he finally got the knock. Um, and he... One of the things that he has to do as a photographer very quickly is to uh, own a sense of power. And as he goes into the seven minutes or 12 minutes with a head of state or, or with an activist or whoever else he uh, might be shooting at the time, his goal as a photographer is to find a surprising or unexpected angle of a person so that his audience sees them in a new light, something unexpected to take off the mask. Most people he's photographing have a thousand people around them who are making sure that the mask is not taken off. And so in that moment, um, Platon uses this box, and he, he told me this very explicitly, to um, interrupt the space and the context and the norms that he's getting when he's at a Sheraton or uh, he's on the back, you know, backstage at Columbia University or he's at, on the floor of the UN to basically physically create and claim you know, two feet by two feet, regardless of where he is, um, and has the you know, head of state sit on it. And often one of the, their minders will say, like, no, 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 he or she can't sit on that. And then Platon says, who else has sat on that? And what that also does is he creates a psychological timeline and relationship between the subject in front of him and all of his past subjects. And he creates a psychological kinship um, before he even takes the first snap. And so you're talking about kind of owning your power as sort of a host and the director of that particular situation, the photo shoot, the director of sort of the space, right? And this is something that comes up a lot in the book, this idea of people's willingness or unwillingness to kind of own their power as the host of a gathering. How does that play out if people are doing that well? And, and what kind of happens when they're not doing it well? I use the term generous authority. I think institutional gatherings tend to suffer from over control. And I think social gatherings tend to suffer from under control. There's obviously exceptions to both. And what I... Uh, what I decided to focus on is particularly the role of the host um, as a creator of a temporary alternative world who is inviting their guests into that world for a temporary period of time and who implicitly or explicitly is kind of showing them what side of themselves to show up, what, what's allowed here, you know, what you can do and can't do. Some communities make this extremely explicit, like Burning Man or Creative Mornings. Other, others do it completely through implicit cues. Um, and all I'm saying in this book is that the, the rise of the attitude of, of kind of being a chill host um, is actually selfishness masquerading as generosity. It's us thinking about how we might look in front of our peers um, to, if, we, if they think we're kind of being too controlling. And, and generous authority, I kind of define in three ways. I think a host, a good host, um, 
connects her or his guests to each other, protects his or her guests from each other, <laughs> and equalizes them. And uh, if not, you're abdicating your role of host and your guests will, you know, take over. And, and sometimes that works. Um, but if you want to do that, make it a conscious decision. You were just talking about protecting people and kind of opening up space, you know, where they feel like they can participate or they feel like they can talk. And the word intimacy pops up with some regularity throughout the book. And it got me thinking that all really remarkable gatherings, and especially the gatherings I think that really transform us, all find a way to achieve some level of intimacy. Why do you think that intimacy matters so much? And, and maybe even particularly when you're trying to resolve a conflict or you're trying to get someone to see something in a new way. Intimacy is a form of, of trust. Um, intimacy to me is a willingness to show myself and uh, in exchange my expectation and hope that you show yourself. And to me, intimacy in a group setting becomes interesting because ourselves are constantly evolving things. So I might show a part of myself to you, and that part might be a, my biracial side, or that part might be my uh, half evangelical Christian side, or that part might be my political theorist side. And then I might be giving you a hook into my identity. But part of, to me, true deeper intimacy is both of us having a comfort for even having that part of myself being willing to change over time. And so to me, groups become very interesting because there's a collective identity that starts getting formed, even if it's just simply like, hey, remember we were part of that same conference or hey, we were part of that same dinner party um, or hey, we were part of that terrible accounting class. Um, but there's also an individual identity in each moment. And to me, intimacy um, is kind of a lifting of the veil, step A. But step B is, is not only seeing who's in front of me now, but also being willing to see who might be in front of me in a few minutes. And how does setting boundaries relate to being able to create intimacy in the first place as a host? I'll just say one more thing about intimacy and this element about identity. I talk a little bit in the book about strangers and how often we're willing to show more of ourselves to strangers on a train ride or on a plane ride. Um, Keo Stark has an entire book on this. And one of the things that um, I believe that this occurs is because the people in our life, when we show ourselves to them, tend to have a stake in part of that story. So if I share one part of myself with my sibling about how I'm having you know, issues with my father, um, my sibling has a stake in that story. She or he is part of the story, might feel defensive of my father, might feel worried about me. Whereas a stranger really doesn't kind of give a damn about um, about my father or me. And so you're able to kind of explore something that's half-baked without judgment and as well as without that person having any role in the story moving forward. And I think that the best gatherings create a, through boundaries and through um, a variety of kind of uh, permission slips. I mean, you have to get people to want to do this. Um, this is completely consent-based get them to show parts of themselves 
um, to each other with fresh eyes, the same way a stranger would look at you. Um, and that the best gatherings create an ability to, for people to show themselves to each other and show themselves that the parts that are still being baked. And so maybe you could talk about, there's one example in the book of the 15 toasts. That's kind of a good example of what you're talking about now. So 15 Toasts is a um, dinner kind of model that I developed with a colleague of mine, Tim Leberecht. And we were both on a council at the World Economic Forum um, called uh, the Global Agenda Council for New Models of Leadership. <laughs> Total mouthful. <laughs> And um, one of the things that we started seeing over and over again were that the, the kind of the norms in the group of those meetings were to show your kind of your strongest self and talk about how great your business was or how smart you are or um, kind of all of these performative acts. And um, and it to me, it was exhausting. Maybe And so we thought, could we create a dinner the night before that would prime people to show themselves in a different way? Both because as an end in and of itself, we love beautiful, meaningful conversations, but also carrying the hypothesis that maybe it would transform the next day when we actually kind of got into the meat of things. And so we um, chose a theme and the first one we we called a good life, not the good life, but a good life. And the rules were basically at some point in the night, you ding your glass, stand up old school style, give a toast to the theme. And um, what we said in the beginning of the night was we're not, you all are, you know, here because of all of your many accomplishments. You, you know, you want to make sure you also see people for their strengths, not just for their vulnerabilities. Um, but we're not really interested in that part of you tonight. What we are interested in are the rooms you've been in, the experiences you've had um, that people don't know about, and particularly the stories that you carry with you as it relates to this theme. And so share a story, toast to a value behind that story. Um, and the only other rule is that the last person has to sing their toast. And that kind of speeds the night up. And what we realized in that evening was by sort of toast three or toast four, people were starting to get kind of teary-eyed as they shared. And in part because it, in that context, at least, we couldn't talk about a good life without also talking about a good death. They were kind of intimately linked. Um, and when you start talking about the more complicated, complex parts of life um, with a group in a contained, boundaried way when people want to do this, um, you start accessing people's kind of humanity and vulnerability. Um, but we gave it a structure so that it had a forward mo motion um, and people knew the role they were playing. They were bought into it. They wanted to do it. Um, you can't force a 15 toasts on somebody, um, but you can invite them into it. When you guys did, didn't you do this sort of throughout the meal? So it wasn't like everyone gives 15 toasts and then we eat. Was it Correct. a little more impromptu throughout the meal? Correct. Right? At any point in the night, um, you can ding your glass. And what ends up happening usually is, um, well, we've done it, you know, dozens and dozens of times, but usually uh, a few people tend to go first and then there's a lull and people eat and then a few more people go and then there's a lull and people eat and talk. And then once there's maybe five people left, everyone gets extremely nervous, at least in the U.S. context. Other, you know, when I've done this in India and people love to sing, so at least my family does. <laughs> so the rule doesn't work. It's slightly, it's organic with some structure. And to me, gatherings um, are to really take off when there's some invisible structure, but there's also an organic life to it. And guests start to, you start to cede your power to guests, but they're still operating within a context that you've laid out for them that they agree to. It's time for a quick break now, but stay with me because afterwards, Priya and I talk about how to create space for vulnerability. 
and why the physical setup of your event, like how you arrange the tables and the chairs, can completely change the outcome. This episode is brought to you by Twist. A guest on this show once described real-time group chat as an all-day meeting that never ends. Instead of death by a thousand paper cuts, it's death by a thousand pings. Well, now there finally is a better solution for teams that collaborate remotely but don't want to feel crazy. It's Twist, a mindful teamwork app that reduces stress and promotes progress. Unlike apps like Slack, where information gets jumbled together and quickly buried, conversations in Twist stay neatly organized and in context because they're grouped in threads which allows you to easily jump back into a conversation after taking a break without feeling overwhelmed. And guess what? It's working. 81% of teams who have switched to Twist say that their team communication is more efficient and organized. And 71% say that they now feel calmer. If you want to cultivate a more organized, transparent, and most importantly, balanced workplace, it's time to try Twist. Visit twistapp.com slash hurry slowly to automatically receive $100 in Twist unlimited credits when you sign up for a new account. That's twistapp.com slash hurry slowly for $100 in credit. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. In the internet age, your website is your calling card. And just like when you meet someone in person, a lot is riding on that first impression which is why finding a domain name that truly captures the essence of your personal brand is a crucial first step. And fortunately, Hover is here to make finding a domain name that matches your profession and your personality super simple. They have a massive amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus some special favorites for creative folks. For instance, if you're building a new website to showcase your portfolio, consider checking out Hover's extensive dot .design offerings, which allow you to bake your expertise right into the URL. And once you've found the perfect match, Hover makes setup a total breeze. They don't bug you with unwanted upsells, and you can easily connect your new domain to a bunch of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got a new website that you're itching to build, start laying the groundwork now by heading on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. You mentioned early on this idea of taking off the mask, and that's sort of almost a little theme between all the different things that we've been talking about. Vulnerability comes up a lot as well in the book, how making yourself vulnerable can really open up the energy of the space. How do you create space for that vulnerability and kind of set the tone? Just like intimacy for intimacy's sake is not necessarily a good and needs to be protected and relate to your purpose. I think vulnerability for vulnerability's sake is also not necessarily a good, and particularly when people are coming from a position of powerlessness. So right now, vulnerability is on the rise in part because of um, you know the work of Brene Brown and um, her kind of codifying this this word into our mind and reframing it as a source of strength, and and. For the most part, a lot of at least her initial work um, focuses on one-on-one uh, vulnerability. 
I'm very interested in group vulnerability. And um, I think that you can absolutely create a context where people are willing to show themselves to each other. But I, again, would bring it back to what is the purpose of this gathering? And the purpose might just simply be um, to connect one another. But, you know, in some contexts, in a work context, or even if you start looking at some of the darker themes that we're dealing with right now in the Me Too movement, or if you were, you know, looking at Charlottesville a year ago and, and the, um, you know, the marches that were happening on campus, like that's not a moment for vulnerability. Well, so maybe we could ground this in some stuff. I mean, what would be um, maybe, a, you know, a kind of positive example of an instance of a gathering where you've seen someone really open up some space by being vulnerable? And then what would be an example of something where it's almost transgressive or, or making someone feel too exposed? Mm-hmm. I'll go back to the 15 Toast example. I was facilitating a dinner in the Middle East and it was for a work context. And we did a 15 Toasts with a number of people who were coming in to uh, workshop a specific idea. I won't get into the details of what the project was, but long story short, in the room was very, very senior government leaders, as well as interns, um, like who were there on their first or second day. And the theme we chose, I think, was risk. So to risk. And at one point in the night, the senior government leader kind of looked at me and realized that he was one of the last to go. And sheepishly said, like, oh, oh, am I part of this? <laughs> I have to go, too. And shared this very beautiful story about how when he um, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he realized that he kind of was ready to get married um, in that traditional culture and didn't know anybody. And he had to tell his sisters that he was like kind of ready to like meet somebody. And he, as he told the story, he became this kind of 18 year old boy talking to, and sibling, right? He, he showed us a part of himself that he would never otherwise show in that context. And he diminished the hierarchy in the room. And that the intern went very soon after. And in that moment, they you know, it's all implicit, but they connected as siblings, right? Rather than a very senior leader and an intern. And the next day when we're brainstorming ideas, you know, I believe good ideas can come from anywhere. And the reason why to me it relates to my theory of change as a gatherer is that I think it's much more likely that that intern will speak up um, when he or she has a good idea because he has also seen that other people who have power in this context can also be small. So, Let's talk about speaking up specifically and uh, maybe circling back to the most common type of gathering, which is the work meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, maybe the most detested <laughs> type of gathering that most of us have to deal with. How do you create a space where people feel comfortable really speaking up and being heard in kind of, you know, a sort of standard, often very hierarchical work meeting type of setting? Um, it depends on the context. <laughs> I will always say that. I think that um, in some cases, when a person in the position of authority creates a rule that is against the norm of the everyday kind of protocol of a group, it can be helpful. So for example, President Obama, um, towards the end of his presidency, started to, uh, he saw some research that showed that um, 
in Q&As, men tend to raise their hands more often than women. And he thought, I have a lot of Q&As, you know, whether it's with my press corps or whether it's my, you know, speeches around the country. And he instituted, instituted this boy-girl, boy-girl rule where in any type of conversation, in any type of question session, when there was an audience asking him a question, he insisted on going boy-girl, boy-girl. Um, I feel like the next round of that is like not to call them boy-girl, boy, you know, boys and girls, but, um, you know, it's, it's progress. And in that context, he was using his power, his authority to counterbalance a trend that men, for a lot of different reasons, tend to raise their hands more often than women. So in some contexts, it could be a leader recognizing a specific behavior that is in a meeting not serving the larger team and creating a temporary rule. Another example from the book is a um, former chairman um, of an accounting firm, uh, Paul LaDucina, and he realized that his board members were using questions to stall decisions. So they were going through a merger um, and their board meetings were kind of going around in circles. And as he listened, and he's a very, very wise listener, as he listened, he started realizing that all of the questions were basically questions for more information. And so for the next meeting, he instituted a rule where he said ahead of time, um, I'm, we're sending all of the information out ahead of time. If you have any questions or concerns for more information, email us ahead of time. Let us know. We're happy to answer them. But in the, in the room, the only questions you can ask have to be generative. And it transformed the meeting. So on one hand, people, when you're in, when you're in a sort of form of authority, to find a temporary rule that can counterbalance uh, behavior can be helpful. Um, another one that people have been starting to tell me when, I, when I'm in public events or speaking um, is to simply ask at the beginning of a, of a meeting, particularly like the daily meeting or the weekly meeting, what is the purpose of this meeting? And to just ask that. And as the leader of the meeting to ask that? Well, it can, whoever is running it. Um, but if you're in another context to, to ahead of time to say, what is the purpose of this meeting? And one of the kind of perhaps counterintuitive advice I give to a lot of companies is to meet and gather less. You talk about in the book, creating spaces for inclusion, but you also talk about the importance of excluding people, right? And how it's very easy to invite people, but it's very difficult to exclude people. Do you feel like there's a good way to make that call or have you seen people set good boundaries around that? Well, one of the people I interviewed is uh, Scott Heiferman. He's the founder of Meetup, which is a technology platform that helps people get online to get offline around kind of affiliate of interest. So LGBTQ hikers um, with dogs, like that's literally a group, you know, with the Harry Potter fans. Um, and one of the things that he said to me when, when they were trying to figure out, like, why do some meetups, and there's, you know, tens of thousands of them around the world, um, why do some meetups kind of remain sticky and people keep attending them over time and others, you know, don't, they fall away. Um, and he said that it relates to some amount of specificity. And he said, basically, your who is your what. And purpose and who's invited are completely interdependent. So you first have to ask, what is the purpose of this gathering? And it can be as simple as like, what is the purpose of my birthday this year? Were I to invite people to come together to help me mark something in this moment of my life as a transition, who can help me fulfill that purpose? And to just remember this phrase, your who is your what? So if you have a purpose and all of a sudden there's somebody in, in the group that doesn't fulfill that purpose or distracts from it, you're diluting your purpose. And 
when we start allowing ourselves to exclude and include based on purpose, not based on race, not based on all of the reasons we've excluded in the past, but based on purpose, um, it stops being so personal when you're not invited to something because every gathering is temporary and you might be invited to the next one. And by the way, when you exclude purposefully, it also means you include purposefully. And so at the next time when someone gets your invitation, they also know, wow, she really wants me there. So much of putting together a great event is about setting expectations. I myself have organized about seven large conferences with a lot of moving parts over the years. And I can definitely say that I strongly agree with the idea that success is about 90% preparation. <laughs> How do you prime people for the right experience? It starts with the invitation. I think that every gathering becomes uh, exists in the world at the moment of the guest's discovery of it. So I might be having a, um, holding a workshop or I might, or a official might be holding a town hall, but the town hall doesn't exist in the kind of collective mind until it's announced and somebody sees it. So I believe that every gathering is a social contract. There has to be a call out and there needs to be a response back. Um, until there's somebody who sees it, uh, it's still an idea. And the way to begin to prime your guests is through your invitation. What do you call your event, right? Is it a dinner party or is it a worn out mom's hootenanny? Um, is it a bonfire or is it a, um, you know, an evening salon? All of the words that we use tend to signal both format, but also vibe. And so the first thing is name your event. Um, and the second thing is to not use your invitation only as a form of uh, carrying logistics, right? Date, time, place that we tend to think often when I work with, with companies or organizations, they say, well, let's just get the invitation out um, so that people know to mark their calendars and then we'll figure out what this thing is. And I say, no, 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 like maybe save the date, date and time, but I want to keep it mysterious. You don't know what this is yet. The invitation is the last step. The invitation is a huge amount of decisions. And, um, and over time, they start to get that. But whenever you are priming, if, for example, to go to our earlier conversation that we want to have people be, be vulnerable, um, you need to begin to prime and prime for that in your invitation, um, you know, whether it's 15 toasts and linking to it or whether it's saying, hey, like, it's my birthday this year. I'm feeling a little bit down. Um, I'd love to, I wanted to invite the people that, that most make me feel most alive. Like I'm being vulnerable in my invitation and implicitly most people who care about you want to respond to that in kind. Well, so when I have put together events in the past, I personally have kind of like this obsession with smooth transitions. So, <laughs> so important. <laughs> when I was curating or sequencing speakers for my conferences, I would always think about like, okay, what type of energy do I want to start this session with? What kind of energy do I want to finish with? Um, you know, in many ways, I actually think it's like making a great mixtape. Like you can have mm. these really sort of high energy propulsive moments and you can also have these kind of quiet reflective moments, but it's about how you transition into them. Right. Yes. Um, and you always have to have kind of a start that really sets the tone and kind of the strong closure. What, what are your thoughts on openings, closings and transitions at gatherings? I think they're hugely, hugely important. I was very influenced by game designers as I went on this journey. Um, and game designers have this idea of the magic circle, which is you to when you create a game, you're basically creating a set of rules. And then once people say, okay, I'm in, they're stepping across that line and they're joining this sort of temporary alternative world. Okay, the tree is the, you know, the goalpost and the, you know, the, the cement, the sidewalk is the outer boundary. Um, and you have three seconds to cross the line, otherwise you're out. Okay, go. 
and you know people literally pause the game. Wait, timeout. You know, wait, what's the rule again? And I think gatherings work in largely the same way. Um, and though to go back to this idea of opening, um, when people are coming in through your door, they're leaving another world. They might be leaving the world of their car. In this day and age, they might be leaving the world of their phone. <laughs> and um, to you want to create in a way like a, a clean break between the world they're leaving and the world they're entering. So one of the people I interviewed for the book was Marina Abramovich, the performance artist, and she does this in a very extreme way. She um, now is is experimenting with the, the, the Abramovich method um, where people come into a performance and before the performance even begins, particularly musical performances, they get uh, headsets that are um, that are silent. They have to check in all of their their stuff, including phones, and they sit in silence for 30 minutes. Um, and she thinks of it as almost like cleansing their palate so that they are clear and clean to be open to the music that is about to uh, happen to them. Um, but I think that we all can do that in various ways. And it can be as simple, you know, in the Indian tradition, um, the idea of of welcoming people with a, um, a tilak and a ceremony right when they walk through the door is very much the same thing. Um, and Or a lay, you know, putting a lay over someone's head. Um, and passageways are liminal spaces. And um, a great host understands how do you begin to allow people to create a passageway, even if it's just simply walking through the door and taking their coat and giving them a drink. Um, that makes them feel welcome and seen at the very beginning. Um, simple things, Ariana Huffington, um, when she hosted the th her first conference with her new company, Thrive, it was in her living room. Um, but she was inviting strangers. I mean, some people knew her, but many people didn't. Um, I had the privilege of going and witnessing that gathering, and she stood by her doorway um, for every single, you know, to all 250 people who walked in. And it completely changed the vibe. She said, welcome to my living room. And if she had stood at the front, you know, or wherever else in her in her home, um, somewhere else, and it wasn't at that very first moment of welcoming, um, she could have said it, but it could have fallen more flat. But she actually embodied this idea that she is going to manage people's anxieties as they walk through the store by looking them in the eye and truly welcoming them. Um, many of these things are very simple to do. Um, I don't think gathering is rocket science. I actually think a lot of gathering gets very complicated because we think it is rocket science. Um, it's actually very, very, very human. The second thing I'd say is don't start with logistics and don't end with logistics. Do them second or find creative ways to do them. But the, mo the opening moments and the closing moments studies have shown and some peak experience are things that people disproportionately remember. And so don't outsource it to figuring out what the bathroom is or you know, talking about what time lunch is. Start with your purpose. Start with story. Start with music. Start with um, a toast. But don't clear your throat first. When I think to come back to the idea of, of closings in particular, I think, you know, I think most people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to have a great opening. But I think the closing is something that kind of gets left on the table or maybe not thought about so much quite frequently. And, you know, I feel like part of it might be that people don't want to take ownership of telling people what to think, you know, like let's say it's the end of a conference. Mm -hmm. Like, do you want to necessarily tell people what to think about yeah. their experience? But I think maybe a more constructive way to think about it is helping them start to integrate the experience. Beautiful. And you give this really lovely example in the book of the closing out of this funeral. Yes. The person I interviewed for that was a woman named Amy Cunningham. Um, she's a funeral director in Brooklyn. And she um, takes inspiration. She used to be a journalist. Um, she became a funeral director um, after experiencing the 
transformative experience of her father's funeral and began to realize that the, these there are potential there's a potential to have funerals be these transformative moments for tribes in this modern era at a moment where they're on the funerals are on the decline or people want celebrations rather than you know mourning and one of the things she says that I love she said we if we do not grieve we cannot be transformed by our grief she talks a lot about exits and how do you after a deeply emotion-filled experience like a funeral, how do you exit? And she borrows from the Jewish tradition that basically once the, the body is lowered into the ground in whatever context or culture you're coming from, if that's, if that's what happens, the, um, the rabbi in that case turns around and invites all of the family and friends to make a human column um, looking at each other, so two lines facing each other, um, and then invites the, the family to begin to walk through it and to make eye contact with people as they leave, to look at each other, perhaps a hug. It's almost like a closing reception line. And then as the family walks through, then the top of the line kind of follows in and then, then you know, and then you kind of snake around and people walk out together. And it's this beautiful physical exit. Um, and she almost always closes by connecting people's specific pain to a universal pain. So that's one of the, you know, for the advanced gatherer, um, to find a way to connect the specific experience that happened here to a larger element of the human condition. And she says something like, may those who grieve here and may all who grieve find solace. And she connects the specific and the individual um, to this larger river of the human condition. And at some level, it takes you out of yourself to say, yes, this is where I am now, but also this is what it means to be alive. Well, so much of what we've talked about, that example and almost every other example that you've given, is so much about really paying attention to the small details. You know, you were just talking about invitations and really not being chill, as you were saying earlier. I, I know in, in organizing my own events, I tend to be like maniacal about the details. Like mm -hmm. I'll make... I'll make the mixes that are playing in the background, you know, think, okay, what's the song? Like, what's going to be the walkout music, that. you I know? Um, and I think that it, even if people don't consciously notice that, and they usually don't consciously notice it, they really unconsciously pick up on it and they feel that love and care and all that kind of like seeps into the gathering. I mean, what do you think about the details and are there specific details besides like an invitation that you feel like are really, really powerful? I have two contradictory impulses as I listen to you. The first is, yes, the ambiance and all of these small, careful, love-filled details cue people in a specific way. The second impulse is you don't have to be a master at any of these things to create meaning for groups. And one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I think, at least for the last few generations, we've been told that care and love should and details should be seeped into um, the things of gathering, right? The right flowers, the right lighting. Lighting does matter, um, but in a in a it's a precondition. It's not going to create meaningful conversation in and of itself necessarily. Um, the recipe books, the you know, that we've kind of outsourced details to chefs and etiquette experts and florists. And I wanted to kind of focus on the details so that we are still detail focused, but it's focusing on the details that help people connect in meaningful ways. So it's shifting the lens from things to people. 
And I think that, so a couple of small details um, that I think make a big difference in any environment. And so, and sometimes it's the principle of like bring in the unexpected. So I think we over-focus on food in our social gatherings and we under-focus on food in our corporate or work gatherings. Like in your work gatherings, bring coffee for everybody. I had a friend of mine who always has... Um, like almonds at all of her meetings and people walk in and they're just delighted. It's such a simple thing. It warms it up. So bring food into your work context. Uh, and then otherwise, like I think lighting makes a huge difference, like almost always turn lights down. Um, one of the books I do love is The Perfectly Imperfect Home by Deborah Needleman um, about how creating space. Um, I think that uh, close, ideally closed doors. I learned that also from Platon, that he he often says as a photographer, it feels like he's like leaking energy um, to create a contained space. So if you're if if you're a group of four and you're sitting down in a restaurant and there's two people on one side of the table and two people on the other side of the table, have it's like have each person sit on the ends of the table. So you have one person on each side of a square. It creates a closing in a circle that will transform the conversation in part because you're just looking at each other. I was at a celebratory impromptu dinner um, a couple of nights ago and we walked into a place. We weren't expecting to have dinner. There ended up being about 16 people. Somebody asked if we could just sit down because they were hungry. So sort of unplanned. And it was one long banquet table um, for 16 people, eight on each side. And it looked very beautiful. Um, and somebody came in towards the end and she couldn't hear anything. And we were trying to give toast, but it wasn't really working. And she said, let's move the tables. And people looked at her and she looked at me and she said, come on, these are your rules. Like, let's move the tables. And it's just so jarring to think like, oh, you can actually physically pick up tables. And so we, we cut the table. I mean, there are multiple tables. We took half the table and we made the whole thing into a square and everyone realigned around it. And it completely transformed the table. It went from a banquet into this like small, um, intimate gathering. And the conversation took off because we could actually see each other. And so part of, of the details, and this can be guests as much as hosts, is don't, accept, don't expect your default kind of physical space. There's a lot of things you can do to warm up a place very quickly. When I think that shift that you were talking about from sort of things to people um, comes up. Another word that you use a lot in the book is embodiment. And you use it, I want to say specifically when you're talking about choosing a venue, but I think it's a much larger concept than that. And it's a really useful one for thinking about your gathering and specifically like creating sort of the energy in the space. Winston Churchill said this um, after the parliament burned down and they were trying, they wanted to um, rebuild it. And there was a debate about whether to make it exactly how it was before or whether to restructure it anew and make it bigger. And he said um, that basically the the shape that they had was inherently an adversarial shape. And he believed that that was good. That was a good thing um, to kind of haggle it out and to be able to, um, to prime the parties that way. And he said something like, um, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. And it's it's the same principle, just like diluted down to, you know, little old me, um, which is however, whatever room set up you're given and what, however you kind of create the um, create the physical um, relationship between bodies tends to then embody and perpetuate the dynamic that then happens between two people. So I'll give an example. <clears throat> We've been talking a lot about social gatherings, but one of the things I purposely did in the book was seek out gatherings, extreme gatherings in all types of contexts. So I interviewed a dominatrix, a rabbi, um, a photographer like Platon, but I also went to courthouses. And one of my favorite examples is the Red Hook uh, Community Justice Center, which was a group of people who realized that the traditional court proceeding was not actually reducing crime in their neighborhood. 
And what this group of people did at the Center for Innovation, uh, for Court Innovation, was they actually physically rebuilt a new court. And they wanted to ask, first, what is the purpose of court? Is it to assign the right um, you know, punishment? Or is it to very radically um, solve underlying problems that are causing this crime? Pretty radical purpose. Were that to even work, what would a physical space look like that could embody that ethos? So they they housed it in a parochial school, an old girls' parochial school. Um, they created, they hired an architecture firm that created all of the benches were light wood rather than mahogany. There was full of glass. Um, the judge's bench, this was my favorite detail, Judge Alex Calabresi is the judge that presides over all of the cases. Um, they lowered it so that he wasn't this on high, uh, you know, literal judge. He, it's still slightly high, but it looks more like a teacher's desk. And what they were doing to your question is they are physically embodying a new way of asking, could this space, when we have people who are in trouble, be a transformative space, not just a punitive one? That's such a poetic, amazing example. <laughs> you mentioned in passing, when you were speaking about someone earlier, you described them as a wise listener. What do you think wise listening means? It's an interesting phrase. I think that the first, so if we take two parts of that phrase, first, a listener, and when you deeply, deeply listen, um, there is there are at least two levels of listening. One is, what is this person saying? The second is, what is this person not saying? And uh, the third is, what do I think about it? And how can I... Um, help create meaning in conversation with them. And I think the a listener is somebody who's deeply present and just fully uh, taking in what somebody is putting out at all levels, not just um, kind of audio, but also listening to them, showing them that physically you're paying attention. I think a wise listener is somebody who can listen much more deeply, not just to the major notes, but to the minor notes, not just what's being said, but what's not being said, um, and to put some discernment in it. So I think one of the things in listening that has become all the rage is um, one should, listening without judgment. But I think that framing has kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater because I think a wise listener listens with discernment. And how do you think we could bring more wise listening to our gatherings? <laughs> I think we need to ask for it um, and model it. I think uh, one of the things that I'm so excited to have this conversation with you and just in the world is um, to give people permission that your gatherings can be about something. Um, and I think uh, modeling listening as a host, so getting off your own phone and when someone's talking to you and your guest is talking to you, not looking over their shoulder, not worrying about the logistics, you know, in the kitchen, figuring out how to help the, you know, how to make sure the food comes out on time, but to be really, really, really listen to what people are telling you. Um, and then I think the second goes back to generous authority, which is protect your guests. So if somebody is not listening or somebody's side chatting or somebody is derailing the conversation in some way, um, Gently or with humor, stop it. I mean, frankly, the first and biggest thing is make people put their phones away. Well, and to that point, I felt like so much of the book was sort of just don't go on autopilot, right? Yes. Don't be on autopilot on your phone. Don't be on autopilot about what a baby shower is about. Don't be on autopilot about having to have an update meeting. Yes. Make it your own. We conflate category with purpose. 
And we tend to, so what I mean by that is we think of a birthday party and think of like candles and a cake, or we think of a wedding and we think at least in this context for a heterosexual couple, like a, a woman in a white dress walking up the aisle. And what I'm saying is first ask, what is the biggest need in my life or in this company or in this neighborhood that a group of people might have the passion and capacity to address? And then gather around that and figure out the form afterwards. And so, you know, some of the most interesting birthday parties I've been to don't look or feel like a birthday party, right? A midnight hike um, or an early morning visit to the fish docks. Um, and people also like to be surprised. At one, there's a number of chapters that got cut, and one of them, an early on chapter, was the unexpected. Um, and uh, you know, somebody who's thought a lot about this is Tanya Luna, and she wrote a book called Surprise Industries. Uh, she had a company called Surprise Industries. But basically, the idea is, in all of these contexts, we tend to fall asleep. We kind of be sort of bored, in part because when we fall into a specific format where we know how to behave, we go on autopilot. And so, if nothing else create a gathering in some part of your work or life um, that is unexpected in some way. Because when people are invited into something that they don't know exactly what's going on, they don't fall into roles or scripts. And often, not always, but often, roles and scripts when they're on autopilot um, tend to not lead to transformative gatherings. Um, Ida Benedito, one of the experience designers I interviewed, um, talks about how in every gathering, the thing, the element that's transformative is some amount of risk. It can be physical, it can be psychological, it can be emotional. But without some amount of risk, it's very difficult for a group of people to come out different. I love Priya's idea that the only way to usher in transformation is to break out of your script, to drag yourself out of your usual rhythms and habits and do something completely unexpected. So maybe that's a good challenge for all of us in the week ahead, to commit to breaking from your usual script and doing something different at a gathering that you're hosting or attending. Maybe it's as simple as bringing food to a work meeting to warm up the atmosphere, as Priya suggested earlier, or maybe it's something bigger, like completely changing the rules of the game as Barack Obama did for his audience Q&As. Personally, I'm headed to a few work-related gatherings tonight. So for myself, I'm going to make a commitment to breaking from my usual small talk scripts and to see what emerges. Feel free to drop me a line and tell me about your experiments at hello at jkgly.com. I would love to hear about them. And speaking of gatherings, I'll be holding a very special gathering of my own on the interwebs early next year. I will be launching a new online course called Reset. And if I had to summarize it concisely, I would say that it's a cosmic tune-up for your workday. It will be an intensive four-week program that will show you how to work in a way that's intentional, energizing, and inspiring. And everyone participating will go through the course together at the same pace with lots of love, guidance, and live Q&As from yours truly. If you're curious to learn more, go to hurryslowly.co slash reset. That's hurryslowly.co slash reset. Be sure to tune in the week after next when I'll be sharing a meditation on a new concept that I've been thinking about a lot lately called tender discipline. 
which is essentially about the power of taking a more forgiving attitude towards yourself and how productive you are at work. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. How would you define creativity in 10 words or less? The act of wondering and then pursuing that question into being. Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for creating our theme music. If you feel like this episode gave you some new ideas, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Just click the handy link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to take your time. Thank you.